Hey now, and welcome to the city off campus with your favorite hosts, Sammy Sommerfeld and Jack McFarland. We've got a special guest today. We got Brooke Beerhouse, um, who's a former Iowa cross country runner, as well as an Iowa grad and current filmmaker. How's everything going with you today? Oh, it's wonderful. I'm loving this fall weather. I'm in Arkansas right now, but I miss Iowa City during this time. It always makes me nostalgic, so I'm good. So I guess that will lead into my first question. So what are you doing in Arkansas? Yeah, um, that is a great question. And I asked myself that for probably like a whole month when I first moved here. Um, but I'm in Northwest Arkansas. I'm going to grad school in Fayetteville at University of Arkansas for cultural anthropology. And um, that was a, a recent development, actually, what brought me to Arkansas was family. And then I loved this area and just wanted to stay. And I was editing, so I was able to work from anywhere, really. And I've, I found a really cool community here in the film scene and arts. And it's been a great place to really try out new projects and especially a good place to be during the pandemic. <laughs> so what um, interests you in studying anthropology and like what kind of led to that decision to go back to school? I think anthropology has always been a big interest for me, but it's I couldn't really pinpoint why or what would be like the, the drawing factor for that. I think I'm just curious about people and our origins and especially ethnography, how we are all connected and, um, and being able to share stories, I think as a filmmaker is really important, not just to go in with like a film or journalistic background, but to go in with insight into humanity and different um, communities and really be able to branch out that way. So I'm hoping that this higher education will help me to really create something even more special than, than what I've been working on. Yeah. So speaking of origins, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up at Iowa and a little bit about your athletic career and how you got to Iowa, I guess is the best way to start. Yeah. Well, um, Iowa, University of Iowa wasn't always on my radar and um, it was a recruiting visit in, I believe it was January when I, uh, 2011 is when I graduated high school and then 2015 is when I graduated from Iowa, just to give some context for people. But uh, my senior year, I took a recruiting visit and fell in love with the team and the like Iowa City itself. And um, there was a runner at the time, Diana Curry Johnson was her full name at the time. Now she goes by Diana Curry and um, she's a Burundi runner. She's six foot, beautiful, amazing energy. Like I just loved her. Um, and for me, uh, in terms of a recruiting visit, I really was looking for girls that kind of resembled me. Like I, I am six foot as well. And I wanted a coach that could train girls that were tall for distance runners. That's kind of a weird, it's not, it's, it's unusual to be that tall. So um, it was nice that she really, I would say she was really a main reason for coming. And then the journalism program, the more I looked into Iowa, the more I saw potential and was really excited about it. So that's what brought me to the university running and journalism. 
can you kind of take our listeners a little through your experience as an athlete and as a runner at Iowa and what types of things you competed in? Yeah. So, um, I always have to preface this with, I had a less than stellar career as a runner at Iowa. It's something that I've been really, um, I think I've been diving into more and trying to figure out like why I have this complex where I have to say I did not reach my potential. And I am very sorry for that to, you know, like competing for the team. And I think that, um, that that is always kind of a, a hard thing to talk about, but I went in with the intent of being a steeplechaser and doing 3000 meter steeplechase. I was really excited about it. Um, plagued with injuries pretty much from the very beginning of my um, career on the cross country team and on the track team. So I competed in say two, two full seasons of indoor and one, one half season outdoor. So it wasn't as great as I would have loved, but I, I trained for the 1500, um, 1500 meters specifically during that time. And um, yeah, it was, I mean, it, it was a great experience with the, the team and especially the support staff. I loved our training room and the facilities and that community is really tight knit. So it, it was a good experience regardless. What introduced you to the steeplechase event? Because I'm I'm not certain that a lot of people grow up thinking that they're going to do that event. How did you get your introduction to that? Yeah. So in um, 2009, I did USATF Junior Olympics. And um, there I was national champion in the 2000 meter steeplechase. And to be honest, I I think I was drawn to it because I felt like it was more intense or in some way more adventurous. And it was different than just running and it broke up that monotony. And so I felt like that was something I could really excel in and got really excited about. Um, so yeah, I, I was able to compete and train. Um, they offer the steeplechase 2000 meters distance at um, junior Olympics when you get to a certain age of, I wanna say it was 13. I could be wrong at that, but I think 13 to 16 was like the age range, um, which I loved. What drew you um, to cross country? Was it the individual aspect of the sport or was it just not being able to find your place in other sports? What kind of attracted you to cross country and running distance? Yeah, I love that question because it really, I think I had to keep on convincing myself that I liked cross country and that I enjoyed it because in growing up in middle school and high school, I played volleyball, basketball, soccer. I loved soccer. And it was during the same time as in Indiana, um, it was in the fall. So the same time as cross country, but I really, uh, had to put a lot of time towards and had a higher level of talent. I feel like in distance running and especially, in cross country when I was younger and that it almost felt wrong to try anything else because I was already succeeding and excelling. And, um, I think I kind of just convinced myself that I liked it because of that, you know, it's, it's hard to not want to do something when you're winning. I feel like that's, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm just not going to question it. I'm going to go on and keep doing it. What was your mentality when you would run 
and compete, what would you tell yourself as it got, as you got further and further in the race? This is going going? to, yeah, this is going to sound crazy. And I, I realize how it sounds a little bit type A, but I would count my right foot and make it a game to get a quicker turnover. And I would say, how fast can you get to a hundred steps? And I would just count that right foot and focus on something else because you know, when your body's in that much pain, you got to play games with yourself. How would you push through the pain in the, afterwards? Like, would yeah. you, you know, after practices and times where there wasn't really a competition aspect in terms of winning or losing, how would you kind of handle that? Yeah, I think that one is definitely, a, I think that's tougher than competing. I think practices are much harder mentally. Um, and physically a lot of the times. So it, I relied a lot on my teammates and we'd be, we'd be broken up into running groups and um, workouts were always by time. So we really pushed ourselves. We were a small team. So with the 16 girls, 18 girls in the cross country team, there would be like four in each group. And you really could get a natural rhythm of like, okay, I'm going to lead this one. You follow behind me and draft and see who's feeling good. And we never wanted someone to um, get left behind, but we never wanted to slow down. So it was like this really cool energy where you all just sort of like help each other and feed off of each other. And on days where that didn't work, it was mostly just like, yeah, counting minutes or counting steps again. What were your favorite things about being an athlete at Iowa? And what were your least favorite things about it? Oh, I, man, I wore my track backpack that had the number on it everywhere. I wanted people, freshman, sophomore year, I wanted people to know I was an athlete. Like I would would walk into a class wearing my workout gear, be like, oh yeah, I just came from practice. Sorry about that. Um, And I was so obnoxious, but I loved it. I loved that small, it seemed like it made the campus even smaller. And that was something that I enjoyed about being an athlete. It was something I could strike up conversations with professors immediately during their office hours because I could go in with an excuse of being like, I'm an athlete. I'm supposed to come in here. It's mandatory. And I want to talk, just let you know my face. And I think that held me accountable. So it definitely pushed me to be more vocal and, and look outside of my, I can get to be very introverted sometimes. And so it, it pushed me out of that um, for classes. But I think the least favorite aspect, um, man, I think it was just not, not always the times when I wasn't doing well running, which was a majority during my collegiate career, I would always feel like I was uh, maybe overlooked a little bit or not given enough support. And the people who would work would succeed would get the most support or like things from coaches or training and um have more of an open dialogue on like how they're doing mentally and everything but the rest of us who weren't up at the top were just kind of like okay like hi i'm here you know and it, it wasn't a great um i think that was hard on me mentally and emotionally so my next question for you is during your time as an athlete on the team at Iowa, what was the most memorable moment for you where you felt like your hard work paid off? And how did that moment 
help you in future challenges or situations? I have two parts to that, if that's all right. I got yeah. two answers that came to mind. So the first one is uh, my freshman year. I um, We were given a strength training workout to do all summer. And so I wanted, it was called, it was labeled workout A, workout B. And it said to do them every, it just said uh, alternate. And so for me, I thought that meant every day was strength training and A and B. Turns out it was supposed to be like Tuesdays, you do A, then on Friday, you do B. And so I came in jacked to the cross country team, which is usually pretty small frames. And I was just like, I had been Olympic lifting. I felt awesome. And um, I remember our first workout, I didn't have as high of mileage going in, but I was able to really keep up and, and, and do really well on that very first first workout that I had um, as a collegiate runner. And I felt like that moment was a good precursor to um, how I probably should have handled the whole uh, training, being more on strength, knowing me now. But um, I think that that did open a really cool relationship with my coach at the time. He saw that and was like, okay, so strength is important for you. And I think as a you know, freshman year, there was more of a point on that for me than there was sophomore year. But um, that one was a turning point for me pretty much directly into um, my collegiate career, which was really cool. But the other turning point was the end of the collegiate career, unfortunately. Um, but it also is fortunate because it was after my junior year Um, well, going into junior year of cross country. And I remember the feeling of um, finally saying this doesn't serve me anymore. Like what I'm doing is not, not fulfilling me and it's not the same. And that took a really long time. It was at least probably a year and a half in the making of me admitting that. And I think that that turning point for me to admit it to myself and then also to have that really, really, really awful, tough conversation with my coach about it was something that led me into being more vocal in my career now and to really assessing every step of the way. What am I doing that's serving me? What doesn't? Um, Being true and transparent. I think that that was a really huge lesson for me. What were um, skills or lessons through training and as an athlete before that point that you were able to apply to things outside of athletics? Oh man, time management that as a student athlete, that is the biggest skill and asset I feel like I gained and I'm forever thankful for that. It time management is so important. And I, right now I have a lot of, I wear a lot of different hats um, with what I do and I wouldn't be able to do that if I wasn't able to have that skill set, So that's definitely the first one. I think um, pain and moments of like disappointment are temporary. So that was a lesson that I really learned early on that it'll go away, like eventually. It sucks in the moment, but it will go away. And that's another like skill, I suppose, that transfers into my day-to-day and, and life right now one final like athletic question I really have because there's so much else that I want (laughs) to deep dive into is one thing we talked about before this podcast is 
your experience as a female athlete and the attention that female athletics got compared to some of the male sports that might've been doing this exact same stuff. So what was that experience like when you would either train with other athletes or, you know, what was that whole experience like, I guess is the best way I can frame it. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's, it is a tough thing to talk about because I think it's a hard there's so many layers to being a female athlete and a male athlete really. Um, but in the, on the female side is only what I can speak to towards. And I think that like body image was something that we always had to, um, struggle with very like tiny uniforms. So, you know, it's like, Oh, okay. Um, scrutinized or judged. And I do remember remarks by, um, you know, the, like male side of cross country and track saying little things about like, if you could tell someone hadn't been training all summer, cause she looked a little bit bigger. And that's something that's always really bothered me. But the other like component that I think that you and I had really talked about was just um, like scholarships too, you know, not really being taken as seriously. Some, I, there were a few remarks from other sports that had said, Oh, well, you're lucky or, um, like title six and female cross country. Like it would be easier if I was a, a female runner to get a scholarship and I was like baffled by things like that, you know, little comments that, um, again, shaped, I feel like how I'm able to be more vocal now, but that, that does always really stick with you. And you think like, Oh yeah, maybe I don't deserve to wear the uniform or it was just weird complexes that would come out of that which thankfully there is more of a dialogue now. And, uh, and that I I've noticed it doesn't comments like that. Don't trigger anything in me like they used to. When you'd get negative comments, whether it was, you know, on your actual athletic ability or assumptions and things like that, that are made by other people, did it fuel you as an athlete and did it make you want to work harder? Or was it something you could just kind of brush off and set aside and stay focused on your goals? When I was doing well, it was so easy to brush off those. I would just be like, well, yeah, come out to the course and watch me. Like, you know, I felt like I could really, if you're going to make assumptions and like, I'm not going to tell you off, just come like watch the talent. But then when I wasn't doing well or I was injured, it was harder to do that. And I think I, it was just like adding to the awful feelings of just like not being enough and, and other things and, you know, letting outside factors influence your internal dialogue, which is very unfortunate. Transitioning from your athletic career to your now professional one, what, um, what interested you with journalism and mass communication and kind of what get, gave you that introduction to it? Yeah, I have always been fascinated with storytelling. I initially thought, I wanted to be um, an actress. I loved like the embodiment of storytelling in that sense, but then that didn't feel as real to me. Um, and it didn't feel like I could evoke, like invoke some sort of change in that way or impact. And that's been important to me. I think the ethics of journalism is to tell a story and to tell it factual. But for me, I've always realized that I'm probably more of an opinion piece, you know, if you really had to label it. I will look at facts, but I'm more interested in the story of the person that this whole story or narrative is about. And like, 
their background and, and other issues that come out of the way we tell stories and, and who we're in sharing and telling stories about. So I think journalism to me was just a way to, it was a vehicle to understand why I wanted to tell stories, how best I can share stories, and then um, in what way that can make an impact. With journalism, you know, it's project-wise, there's a lot of work that goes with it, you know, studying yeah. it. I mean, Jack and I can definitely relate with what we're currently studying. And so how are you able to balance that and your um athletic training and career and stuff like was it ever hard when you had to get an interview for a class project or you know edit a bunch of film that you took to you know get things done so how did you manage that and how did you like how were you able to prioritize the quality of your work while also keeping up with your training you know that I can pinpoint the almost the turning point for me of being like, I want to focus on journalism and focus on my studies more than going to training or more than competing and being an athlete, which also was a reason why I ended up um, quitting the team. And that, that was something that it's really hard to balance all of that, especially the creative side of telling a story or getting interviews and working with subjects. I mean, you guys know when you're trying to schedule something, especially nowadays, but even, you know, a couple of years prior when you're trying to schedule time to get a 30 minute interview with someone and they're like, I have Monday from one to four and that's it. You're like, Oh, that's when I have practice time. I can't do that. So it, it became enough that um, I really wanted to focus more time on journalism. So I wasn't really able to balance it as well as I, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't giving enough of my talents and skills towards one or the other. Um, and I would always feel bad about that. So that was sort of a, a reason why. So when you stopped, um, you know, kind of halted your athletic career and kind of focused solely on journalism and any artistic you know, work that you wanted to work on creatively. What were some of the activities you kind of picked up once you had the free time um, at Iowa to get more involved? Yeah, I went directly to KRUI. I wanted to do radio because I, I mean, to be fully honest, I definitely have a side of me that's a little bit um, superficial. And so I knew if I went to DITV, I would be wanting to get all ready and look cute and be on camera. And that's not what I wanted to work on. I wanted to work on the crafting of telling a story. So I said, radio, I can't be, I won't be seen. I can go, I can show up um, and just really focus on the story itself. So KRUI was the best decision for a full, I did my full junior year. I worked with them. And then my senior year, I took an internship in DC working with the Smithsonian National Zoo, I was doing their uh, videography and really kind of running the YouTube channel at the time because it was emerging and I had a lot of a lot of room to grow with that, which was really cool. And I, I did get into um, Dance Marathon, which was wonderful during my junior year as well. So I, I tried to get more involved and expand myself in different ways. 
after um, the initial quitting of being on the team. So you talked about your internship with um, the Smithsonian Museum and running their YouTube channels. How did your experience with that, how did early projects or opportunities like that help you further along in your career? And did anything you learned in that experience change the way you might have looked at creating a story or creating a message or um, any other types of creative ideas or skills you've picked up? Yes, it was it was so important to have that opportunity at the very beginning because it did really shape the way that I tell stories. And, you know, I, my junior year, um, what would that have been? Oh, um, spring semester of junior year, I took Charles Monroe and Angie Looney's TV production class and was able to get a skill set in Premiere Pro. It wasn't great, it was early days, but I was able to use the editing software. And that was a big reason that I landed the job with the Smithsonian was I took, I just read this new research and I took B-roll and did a voiceover and edited together this idea that I, to show them that like, you don't really have a internship spot for video right now but this is why I would be so great for it and I'm super cheesy sometimes so I was in it and I was you know being like look at me I can do this you know (laughs) and um and it translated with them and that knowing that marketing and communications team at the Smithsonian at the zoo excuse me specifically they loved that and I really vibed with them really well and I think that type of energy with management in that sense early on was really important for me because they they let me have enough room to pitch ideas and pitch stories and what I wanted to do but they also gave me clear um clear tones and edits and what needed to be done to to keep with the brand and to really interact with their audience which at the time I didn't really know much about brand engagement or promotion, which that was just like career altering for me. Um, But I also think that working at a more scientific institution, and I say more scientific than what I was used to, but like they are a scientific institution and working with people who have devoted their life to one area of science or one area of focus that, you know, I would talk to a, um, a zoologist who has only been working with gibbons and I had to learn at least enough to talk with them and interview them. But it was so cool to see how, like, if you just have at least a basic knowledge of certain things, how to structure questions that people just are able to share with you and teach you while you're teaching your viewers. And I think that's been really important for me to always do research enough where I can ask questions, but then not have the answers all the way, because it's more important that it's shared on camera. That kind of leads me to what drove you creatively as a college student and what has either stayed the same creatively for you that has kind of always been a mainstay and maybe your values or morals as a creator, but what's changed over time for you too creatively? Oh, that's so hard because I feel like so much has changed, but I, I will touch on the thing that I feel like has always stayed the same 
And that's utilizing and I don't know what word I really want to say with this because it's, it's utilizing my own voice, but it's also acknowledging that my ideas and my opinions and my own voice itself can change and evolve as it needs to um, with new knowledge or new insights that are given. But I think that one thing that has always drawn me from the very beginning is that I do feel like I personally have stories that I want to share and I have a voice, but it's also no, that's, I suppose that's probably why I didn't fit like perfectly into journalism because I, I definitely have opinions and want to talk about it and, but want to make it personable. And I think that being able to work on projects where I'm able to have a voice, but I'm not the one leading the narrative. It's more of like, I know what I want to say, but I'm not manipul manipulating it. Right. So it's, it's this fine line, but at the end of the day, any type of film is being manipulated from the camera shots to how you're writing it, to how you're framing things, editing. So I am able to put my voice into that in little ways that I feel, you know, represents characters and the people and the subjects in the story. But um, that's evolved so much, like not just the voice, but just what I want to work on and, and stories that I want to tell and um, where I want to put my attention towards compared to college where I was, I will say I was a little bit everywhere. <laughs> I just yeah. Had, yeah. And I was going to get to that because from what I can recall from a conversation we had was your first two documentaries that you made. The first one, I think, was Ice Climbing on the Silo yes. in Cedar Falls. And then wasn't the other one Tyler Yarn Bracelet Stories? Mm -hmm. So how did films like that, your early creations, help build upon creating a film like The Connected Cup? Yeah, I, um, that's so funny because even hearing those stories, I'm still so interested in those aspects, right? It combines like ice climbing was the adventure side and outdoor side that I love. And then Tyler is this very humanistic story where he talks about what, you know, he's in it homeless and then halfway house at the time is what, and I don't know exactly his situation now, but he was braiding bracelets and would sell them. And then I, I did like an initial package video package on him just with the bracelets and the artistic side. And then the journalistic component of me and then documentarian too took over and I started figuring out, okay, well, where does he live? And what, what does he like, why did he get here and what has happened in, um, in certain parts of, uh, you know, mental, um, disadvantages and such that he had um and some other complex background stories led him to a halfway house and the um director was able to talk a little bit about what they offer at um i can't remember the specific name of the place in i in iowa city but it was really cool for me to see how a story can progress from being very i don't want to say like fluff piece but kind of fluffy uh to this more just uh, not a hard look, but a more humanistic story. And I've been, yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot about audio since then. I think I shared with you the ice climbing story. I came back and I had no audio, just these talking heads with nothing to say. And it was, yeah, that was a hard lesson right from the get-go. <laughs> 
before we deep dive into the connected cup and the documentary you made, I thought one way to start it off would be if you were talking to just a random stranger on the street and you were telling them that you made this film, how would you describe it without giving too much away to them? Ooh. So I'd usually, if I saw them with a coffee, um, I would probably ask them um, like if they remember their first cup of coffee. And the stranger would probably look at me like I was insane and be like, get away. But um, let's say they said, okay, to this. <laughs> and they told me their, their first cup of coffee. And I would just say, it, it's so interesting how coffee is this vehicle that transports you to your own space where you can have a language with people that you don't even know because it creates this moments and these spaces for connection. And I actually made a film and I can talk, tell him about the Connected Cup and how it, it looks at nine countries and it utilizes interviews in nine languages to prove this thesis that there is a global language that can be shared between people when they're having a cup of coffee or tea and that it's integral to moments of connection. You have a quote on your IMDb, and I don't know, I don't know if you know you had an IMDb, but... No, I didn't know there was a quote. <laughs> yeah, there is a quote, and it says, uh, at the beginning, I would rather be uncomfortable than take someone else's offering, but that's actually the most selfish thing you can do because you're taking away their ability to give. Changing the narrative on that helped me tell this story. When you say tell this story, I know you're speaking in general terms, just what you're trying to do as a journalist and tell stories. Um, what helped you change that narrative for you to stop? Because I'm the same way selfishly, like sometimes I am like uncomfortable and I'll say no in a situation, but yeah. what helped you um, become comfortable and change that narrative for yourself? Yeah, that is a great question. Oh yes, and that is a great quote because it did make a... Um it did really change the whole way that I even view life and interactions with people. I can remember that moment very clearly. I was filming in Ethiopia in Lalibela at the time. And for a week up to this point, people had been offering for me to come in and see you know, their coffee farm or talk with them. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk with people and have these moments of connection. And then that's kind of where I wanted to draw the line, right? I was like, I feel as if I'm taking so much from you because you're take, I'm taking your time. I'm sitting here being able to like take this story that you're trusting me with and you don't know what I'm going to do with it. Like I've told you, but you don't really know the creative vision. And so it feels very like intrusive and I didn't never wanted that. And that wasn't something that a feeling I was really placing on myself and um, finally, my translator friend, and he was also a second shooter from Ethiopia, and he would help with the filming. He said, Brooke, you got to stop telling people no, because it's a little bit rude. And they're trying, it like, takes their away their ability to even give to you or to feel like they can, like, they have less than what you have probably, but like, in the grand scheme of things, why wouldn't you want to make someone feel like they're kind, like they're giving you something other than just like time or talking? And um, 
I think when he was saying that, how it was rude, that was the first thing that got to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to come off as rude. That's the last thing I want to do. But um, for him to also say that it was taking away their ability to give and don't you feel so great whenever you're able to give something to someone, whether that's just like a, a, a wonderful piece of advice or maybe you can make a meal for someone. And he was like, think about if you made a meal for someone and they said no. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. So <laughs> I started taking those meals. And if someone said, we really want you to stay with us and pitch your tent in the backyard, then I would say, okay, let's do it. Like, thank you. I need a place to stay and pitch my tent. And I can, you know, in that way also learn more. I, I started learning about the language in certain areas that I would be because I wasn't, you know, paying for a hotel somewhere. I was actually accepting these offerings and yeah, it just changed everything for me. And I still battle that feeling of feeling selfish or like not wanting to take because I then immediately feel like I have to give something and it just doesn't feel genuine. But once I was able to, I, I still am trying to get better at that, but at least accepting it was, was a big part. For people who aren't uh, familiar with your documentary, how did you get uh, the concept of it? And did you ever envision yourself having this documentary take you to the places it has? I think I always hoped that it would. I wasn't entirely sure where, though. The, the idea for the Connected Cup came from a time when I was working in the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica. I was doing wildlife research and um, journalism there for about five months. And the team of researchers and guides that I was with in Corcovado National Park all spoke Spanish and English was their second language. And my Spanish was pretty minimal still. It wasn't great. It was like high school level. And um, I would notice that they would speak English most of the time, like 50-50 with me. But then at the end of the day, when we are like, 4 p.m. whenever we'd have an end, an end of the day coffee, it would just be Spanish from then on. And I actually loved that because that helped me to, again, gain that new language and actually be able to have conversations and talk and, and create a fluency. And I think I, I think that just kind of like, I don't know if it planted the seed, but it, cause I, I think that this story has always been in me. And I just think it's been like a culmination of the years of coffee and the things that it, coffee has really brought into my life, not just from the energy and the drink itself as it provides, but connections around the world and with family and friends. And that moment in Costa Rica really made me want to, I think, follow that narrative more and really create something special. And so my first real step in that was going to a coffee farm uh, Cafe de Monte Verde in Costa Rica. And they, I thought I was just going to do a coffee, like short film, because I had only, actually, at that point, I hadn't even finished a short documentary film. It all been really news packages. And I decided after I got a job as a, um, it was an assistant production slash like on camera gig on a documentary in India that never got published, but was an amazing experience and, and helped me to realize that it's not just coffee that creates these vehicles, but also tea. And that was the second country I visited and it really changed how I was gonna structure the story. 
And I got very advantageous again, said, I'm going to do a feature film. And it took three years of filming. Um, I visited nine countries and the nine countries came very, I think they came very organically for me because um, I had a list of places I wanted to go, but I didn't know what would be feasible and what context I'd have. I did a lot of research beforehand on places and, and figuring out how to do this on a budget too. Um, I definitely filmed on a budget and did some workaways so that I could get familiar with places that I was. Um, but the film itself, the, it stopped at nine countries because I felt like I had to draw a line somewhere. But I feel like it's it's even a story that I kind of feel called there's like there's more to it that I would like to explore. But the the nine countries too, if for anyone that hasn't seen it, and it's probably a majority of you, but it's on Amazon Prime and it's also being screened at um, the Global Coffee Film Festival. It's virtual this year. So there's a link um, to that. I believe it should be on my Instagram if you guys have the, um, the that listed anywhere below, but um, it incorporates India, Costa Rica, the US, we went to Boulder, Colorado for it, um, Kenya, Tanzania, Japan, um, Morocco, did I already say that? In, um, Italy, and um, oh, Ethiopia, my gosh. Um, yeah, so, and it ends with following this really the first connected cup being water and clean water. And that's the advocacy part for it more than just connecting with others, but really being able to see that without clean water, there's no way that we'd have these drinks, these moments of connection with coffee and tea. So. You mentioned the, um, the clean water and obviously coffee and tea for these people in the nine countries that you described is really, it almost has like a, a ritualistic and intimate sense to it. Now you, you see you, you see all of it in all the countries that you went to. How do you see this type of appreciation and intimate care for coffee here in the States, if any? And if there isn't, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that maybe if you'd asked this question like pre-COVID, I would have had a different answer. But especially during this time where most of us were at home, I noticed an influx in just Instagram stories really of people like their morning cup of coffee or like so happy to have a moment of gratitude or like they just sit there with, you'd see a coffee cup and then like the corner. And I noticed that across friends and then other people on Instagram that I interact with. And, um, and I think too, there was this dialogue that people were really missing this third space that a cafe and coffee shop provides. It's not home, it's not work, but it's this third little space that creates some sort of atmosphere where you you could work but you could also be surrounded by people and maybe not even have to talk for those of us that want to get work done but also would like to be surrounded by people um maybe not now but before covid that coffee shop would do that and i i remember seeing there was a op-ed piece that someone wrote like a love letter to a cafe, one of their favorite cafes and how they missed it. And it was just like, I miss going to see you. And then at the end, it says like, uh, like that it was a cafe, but when you're reading it, it really felt like a person. And I think that maybe there's a way that we're, we're gaining this deeper appreciation for a drink that 
used to be, oh, my morning cup of coffee and then we'll just like type and be done or, you know, got to refuel, got to stay up all night. And yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think I, I haven't quite figured out a ritual just yet that would like encompass a lot of Americans, but I think that there's enough there that like there's so many different ways that people can enjoy the drink and it's very personal, I think. First off, I have to say the part where you went to Italy made me miss Italy even more. Uh Um, That was one of my favorite parts of the documentary. But and also I liked how there's integration, too, with the historical aspect, too. There is a culture history was all blended into it as well, um, as well as environmental advocacy and cultural awareness. How were the nine countries selected? And how do you think the story could have been continued if you pushed on further with more countries or more interviews or whatever, you know, anything else? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Italy was definitely um, the editing part was so much fun for me. Like Mr. Stefano Steptovich from Cafe Florian, you know, uh-huh. the oldest cafe in Europe. And that was pretty incredible. Um, I was able to select. So I did have a, a list when I was initially like a dream list where you just write down every location that you would love to work on for like said film. And I think I had like 25 places, which should not surprise me at all because I just, yeah, would love to travel more and I love traveling itself. But um, I think I really got this outline for places to go down to 15 countries or 12 countries. And from there, I, I tried to look at what would be best in terms of like a film schedule. So Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia were all doable for me. I was setting aside about, um, at that time it was seven months where I would be in Ethiopia for a month, Tanzania for three months, and then Kenya for another three months. And I was doing workaways during that time too. But I, I wanted to be cognitive of, uh, you know, different continents. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just focusing all on Europe. I didn't want to just focus all on Africa. I wanted to incorporate more of like showing that this, regardless of your background or where you grew up, you know, that we can still connect over this. Or, I mean, at the time, I didn't know if it was true or not. I was hoping. And then I also wanted to make sure I had at least somewhat of an even balance between coffee and tea. I think that both drinks really deserve their own like background and history for drinks as tea and coffee because there's so much diversity within that, but that's not what the film was about. So I had to remind myself, like we're going to Japan and I, I want to learn more about matcha. I'm very interested in the cer- ceremony aspect of that and the rituals because in the history and tradition behind that, but that was most important was that it, it, does it does create these moments to just reflect and that's why matcha was important to me as opposed to going and getting black tea which black tea and chai we talked about chai in india those are more of moments of connection with people and their stories and less about the drinks and so i i had to always kind of remind myself not to fall back on the drinks themselves because there's a lot of information that just comes from tea and coffee and the people that are behind that those drinks farming and 
um, trading and everything. And so um, being able to select the countries was a little bit harder, but once I was able to say why, like tell myself exactly why I want to go there, what I'm hoping to find. And then I would um, reach out to like tea farmers or um, little cafes that I thought looked really neat, or I'd find like um, tourist agencies that would help facilitate certain these ideas that I was having and possible film locations. And being mo mostly a one woman crew, it was a little bit easier. And my um, equipment is pretty small. I don't have a huge rig. And I think that allowed for more intimate moments with people, but it also allowed for me to kind of say like, oh, I don't need a, a film permit here. I'm just vlogging, like, you know, but then I'd also tell them, okay, I'm not vlogging. I'm actually filming. I want to be transparent, but being one woman crew was definitely easier for me to navigate traveling and filming and, and everything too. How were you able to keep yourself focused um, during that time and not either sidebar um, other topics into the film or, you know, end up having more questions on stuff that might not be centered around coffee or tea? And how were you able to just kind of keep yourself focused being a one woman crew? Yeah, I, I think that's probably honestly tying back into my running. I am able to really stay focused on one thing for an extended period of time, but I also do have other interests and wanted to create and get my editing skills. So Workaway was, and working with nonprofits too, were both really great avenues for me to, I would say be like creative in other avenues and dig into questions that I had regarding culture or wildlife or anything really in the countries that I was visiting, especially working with nonprofits, I would reach out and see if they had, these organizations had a need for visuals in any way. And if they did, I would offer my skills and ask for like either subsidized housing or free accommodation, um, something that could just take away some of the costs that I was um, trying to keep really low. And that also allowed for me to work on my editing skills so that I was able to edit the film when the time came. And that was something that I didn't think I was going to do. I thought I was gonna hire a, um, an editor and, and work with them. And it just, because I was also working on these short documentaries and um, wildlife packages and, and things of, that NGOs would need, I, I did develop a skill, which was really cool. Um, I actually just forgot what your initial question was. So I hope I answered that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, to follow up, living in these different places for extended amounts of time, were you able to teach yourself or pick up on new languages? And if so, how many were you able to pick up? So I always want to make sure I can say, hello, how are you? Thank you. You're welcome. And more coffee, please. Um, so <laughs> I try to learn, <laughs> learn that in any environment that I'm going. Um, and I think that it just shows a sign of respect to be able to at least say thank you or hello in someone's language. Um, I was able to, gosh, I think picked up eight, eight different languages, but not like no fluency in them, right? Like I have conversational Swahili from those times, but it's not enough that I could interview and be able to ask follow-up questions in different languages. So I did utilize um, translators a lot 
doing this film in that time span you you talked about knowing the question more coffee please yeah how many cups of coffee would you drink a day during the filming how many do you think you consumed during the uh, project and then I oh my follow up to that okay when I was in Italy I there's a part in the film uh where the interviewer um the guy I was interviewing Bryant uh the Roman guy mm-hmm. he says that Romans drink like 10 to 12 cups of coffee a day, espressos. And I felt so at home there. I was like, great, I'm not going to be judged. I'm just going to have espresso after espresso. It didn't last super long, but there was a day where I tried to have eight espressos and I ran like the whole length of the Tiger uh, River. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy, but, um, or at least the, the river length in Rome. Uh, but I think, gosh, I would probably usually have four or five cups of coffee a day during that time. Those three years editing I did, I had like, yeah, five or six a day. And then um, overall, oh man, I don't know. There was one month that I took off a whole month not drinking any caffeine and it was the worst and I've not done it since. But um, maybe that takes away some of the, my grand total, you know, that month where I didn't drink coffee. Yes, so- I was going to ask next coffee or tea, but it sounds like it's oh, pretty coffee. strong swinging coffee. <laughs> yeah. I love tea. Don't get me wrong. There are, I, I make, um, I make sincha still and I love having oolong and I'll make teas, but I'm a, I'm a coffee girl. You go back to, uh, if you had someone in front of you who's drinking a cup of coffee, you usually ask them like, do you remember your first cup of coffee? And a lot of the people that you interviewed would talk about that, you know, intimate feeling and remembering their first cup um, while making the tea or the coffee. Have brands like Keurig or other um, just quick, easy brands that can make coffee or tea like that, have they um, taken away from that intimate feeling or is it just an evolution version of how coffee is produced and consumed? I love that question. I think you are the first person to ask me that question. So this is a very off the cuff answer. And I, I'm very excited about this. Um, the, I think that being sometimes the process of making coffee is part of the experience, right? And I mean, historically and traditionally it should be, and it is part of the process in Ethiopia, you have the ceremony and there is something to be said about having those moments where, you know, how long it takes to make the coffee, you know, this sort of give and take in the rhythm of conversation that happens throughout. And you also know that when you're having the weakest cup of coffee, um, Tona is what it's called in an Ethiopian coffee ceremony that you know that then it's over. So it's a really weak cup of coffee and it's like, okay, cool. This is natural. We're done. Whereas with Keurig or other like quick ways to make coffee, it's there in your hand. You had like one minute, maybe 30 seconds to decide what are we going to do after we have coffee? Are we going to walk if saying you're with someone as having your co- a coffee, but if you are with someone, you have to decide, are we going to sit down? Like, what is this coffee having us do? Like, and I would hope that it would be a conversation. And if it is, then you just move that space that would have been set up to prepare for coffee into this other like living space. Maybe you go out to the porch and talk together and, and coffee is just seen as a way to maybe like comfort comfort 
in a way because you can hold something and have this conversation together. I don't, I would love to see if anyone's done research on that, on just this evolution of the making coffee. I know the environmental impacts people have been seeing and, you know, CEO, founder of Keurig has always said, I wish I hadn't done it with the packages like this because it's so, I mean, it, now we have other options where people are making biodegradable or compostable ones, but it, it is a very interesting concept. My final question re- related to the film, and then I want to transition to some other projects you've worked on, is what was the editing and distribution process like of getting the film on Amazon Prime and into festivals? And what was it, how long did it take you to edit the film? in itself and what was that like as somebody who didn't expect to even edit it yeah I always tell people that the film this feature is my baby and it's perfectly timed because it took me nine months to edit so it officially is a baby (laughs) and um the distribution side is something that I never I, I truly had no experience with other than pitching networks or just pitching platforms that would host like short videos that I did or photography series. That's my only experience. So film distribution is extremely different and it's also kind of cutthroat or who, you know, and that was hard for me. I was able to, you know, I, gosh, I, I learned, unfortunately, um, to really vet who you promised to like work with in terms of distribution with the film. Cause a lot of the companies that say like, you know, pay 1200 up front and we'll help to like get it onto iTunes. And so I did, it was on iTunes for like four months before I was like, I'm not getting any revenue from you guys. Uh, when will I expect payment from everyone that's bought the film on iTunes and they went bankrupt and <laughs> I was out, you know, like, unfortunately that ended up being like a $3,000 lesson from not getting any of the revenue that the film made. And realizing that that's, I'm not alone in that. There's a whole group, there's 250,000 filmmakers that are upset about this ordeal and like, what are we going to do about it? And um, so that, and that's just worldwide. And, but um, in terms of getting it on Amazon Prime, it was really, it felt like a great way to get people in the US, UK, Germany, and Japan to be able to see it, but it still didn't tick off everything because what about the rest of the world? Like those are my main markets, I suppose, but what about everyone else? So um, it is on Vimeo. And at the moment it's because of the struggles that I've seen as an independent filmmaker. And then also hearing from my community on distribution, I am looking at alternatives and utilizing cryptocurrencies and blockchain to be able to host films on uh, like not just to have a decentralized way of viewing films and the filmmakers to keep their profits and keep their rights. And so I'm currently working on that with a, a team that I'm really excited about and hopefully we'll have more information in the new year. But yeah, those are, those are what I'm working on in terms of like lessons I learned with distribution. Yeah, that's really interesting. One thing that I came across um, a few weeks ago is your YouTube channel. Oh yeah. Some of the short um, videos and stuff you've made on there. 
So what do you enjoy about creating on the YouTube platform? Like I, the one that I really enjoyed watching was the one of you, your mom and your grandmother and being in quarantine and capturing that. So, you know, what, what types of things, what go, like, how do you brainstorm for YouTube or is it just kind of, you know, sudden, like I'm going to make a video right now. How can I do it? And what can I post? Or is it more thought out and planned? Yeah, I, so I'm wanting to, I think like, let's see, backtrack a little bit because for me, I always, when I was traveling, people would always say like, make a YouTube channel. And I was worried that it would invalid, it would invalidate my filmmaking career. So it's like, nope, I'm a documentary filmmaker. This is what I do. And so you'll probably notice a lot of the packages that are up there, the videos that I've made, it's kind of sporadic. Like there's not really a theme to it just yet other than like, documentaries itself. So I have a bunch of different topics up there from transportation of bushmeat and ivory in the Western corridor of the Serengeti, talking about that, and then going to like um, FGM, female genital mutilation in Kenya and this Maasai houses to my own home with my grandmother and my mom during quarantine and seeing how like three generations of self-isolation, what's that like? and I think that I would, I would really, I'm interested now. I feel like now is a good time for me to really utilize doing um, series or figuring out how best to use YouTube in that sense and not be vlogging, but be creating your own channel really of, of series. And I hope that, you know, I, I kind of wish that I would have gotten into that quicker and said, this is actually a network. Like let's, let's do this other than rather than me being like, if I become a vlogger, then networks won't want to pick me up. Like I was still looking at um, jobs with NBC and other networks. And I was like, oh no, it invalidates it. But really it's a great, it's a great tool. And it's a great way to convey these messages with people. And um, answering your, your other question about that, I, I do, I really think out what I'm going to, going to put out there. So it is very, I think that's something that I wish I was a little more spontaneous with filming and with stories. And that's just like social media itself. I wish I was less thought out on things, but I also know that that is a skill. I'm very in my head, like all the time. So, so I, I everything I do is, is made with a um, intent, which can have good and bad, you know, outcomes, but. What kind of, is the biggest driver for you in creating advocacy films and films with a strong message behind them, whether it's something, you know, that's a smaller project, like filming your family in quarantine and trying to capture three generations and kind of capture that moment in time and the impact it has all the way up to creating a feature film documentary, you know, where you're advocating about, you know, you talked about the clean water, even as a, you know, reason for, connecting that with coffee so why advocacy films and why do you separate yourself in that category or those subject matters compared to other topics yeah I I've always felt like I I want to give back but I don't know but giving itself in a way of like what I'd seen before felt very charities that you'd go in and like do a mission trip for a week. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. That's also not me. So, you know, like I, I didn't do that. And I wondered how can I 
use my skills in a way that can impact people or enhance stories that maybe aren't getting told, not for lack of like having a voice. It's from lack of like having the equipment and the ability to go to school like I did and the ability to, to learn like I, I was able to do. And so I'm very attuned to that fact. I have a hard time when people say giving voice to the voiceless or things. I'm like, no, no, no. Everyone has a voice. This is just like, it's using privilege or opportunity because that is what I was given. And um, I think because of that, I've always wanted to learn more about like how we can help each other, why we can help each other um, with our skill sets, but then also just as human beings, because at the core of it all, we are all humans. And, and that's something that I think I kind of just remind myself in every single film that I make is like, how can I get people to see past, like, I hate using this word, but it's like actually true, poverty porn, pretty much. Like when you're looking at shots of, of kids and they're hungry and it's like, okay, but that's again, manipulation on a few things. Like if you're just trying to get people's money, that's different. But if you really, really want them to care, how can we do that? And I am still trying to figure out like what, cause what impacts one person doesn't impact another. So how can we make films that impact, if not everyone, a majority. And I think that's why I work in, in more advocacy films and documentaries and less now in the, the hard, like hard journalism or true journalism, because I really do want there to be change. And sometimes I can't just look at facts. I'm very influenced by emotion, so. And lastly, kind of the last topic I wanted to discuss is I think you're our first guest who also has a podcast. Oh, and, yeah. Um, I, you know, that's another passion you have and a creative outlet that you've created for yourself. So how did that kind of happen? Um, who do you host it with and who is the audience and who are some guests that you guys kind of target? Yeah. So I have a podcast on the Believe podcast network. It's called when your sport ends and it is really looking at that transition period where athletes who were either elite athletes or um, collegiate athletes, collegiate athletes is what we really started with. Um, but it can be any level of athletics that someone's attained, whether that's like tied into high school or, you know, however that age range is, because athletic identity is instilled in everyone who competed or in some way. So we look at that transition period out of competing and what that's like and the psych behind that. And then also the emotional toll and how do you find your identity again? And what do you put your time towards and how can you utilize those skills from being an athlete? I co-host with my, my boyfriend, which sounds very, uh, like childish. So I always call him my partner, but he's like, quit, quit calling me that. <laughs> so my boyfriend, um, and he is a former Texas longhorn swimmer. So he and I really bonded over that that time in our life and that tough transition out where you can't wear that Iowa backpack anymore and let people know exactly who you are. Like you have to tell them and, and be something other than an athlete. And so we've had guests ranging from Olympic figure skater, Paulina Edmonds, who's on this season, our second season, um, to, um, Hawkeyes. We've had a lot of, we had an Iowa softball player, Tor Holly, who, is a great friend of mine too. I really enjoyed her podcast episode with us. And 
we've had um, former teammates of mine and then former teammates of Dawn. And um, so Texas swimmers and Iowa runners. And it's really been a cool group. We've, we've even gone into sports ranging from rugby and lacrosse to basketball, football. And it's, it's been a really great, I think, first season, really. I mean, we started in February. Um, our first episode aired in February with the network. And then we are dropping our first episode of second season this Thursday, which will be the, what will Thursday be? The 15th? Yeah. So I'm yeah, really excited about that. That's awesome. So my final two questions for you are who has inspired you as a creator, whether mm -hmm. it's filmmaking, podcasting, any, anything creatively, artists even, and what is some advice you'd have for young creators who are just starting or want to start, but don't know how? Yeah, I, man, I feel like creatively, I've always really... I've really tried to look for female creators. And I think that that's just something because I can identify and see myself in them and the way that female filmmakers tell stories or in creatives tell stories is usually more, usually more in tune with emotions and, and that, that fuels me as well. Um, trying to think off, off the top of my head, cause honestly, my biggest inspiration has always been my mom. And that is, she, is very artistic. She's a school teacher, but she's not in this industry. And I think that that inspires me even more sometimes because she's able to ask pretty much anytime I'm doing something, why? Like, that's, that's interesting. Why are you doing that? Instead of someone in the industry who knows why I'm doing it, or, you know, doesn't make me think about exactly why I chose that edit or that shot or what translates. So she, she is a really big inspiration for me and always has been. Um, and then advice to creatives and filmmakers, students, like anyone who's thinking about just a career of career in any field, but especially being an entrepreneur or creating something for yourself, I would say just start doing it in any, like in any phase that you're in, um, get used to talking with people who you don't know and trying to make connections online. Cause that's where we're at right now. That's the climate you know, look on LinkedIn, reach out to them. Like, Sammy, you reached out to me and it was awesome. Like, I, I love that. And I think that anyone who's wanting to get into a field where you really need other people in order to like make something, you need collaboration. You also need people to take time to tell their stories if that is like what you want to work on. And I think that being able to just not be scared about rejection or what you're working on just remember again, like it's all time is just, it, it varies, you know, like it, it, it's always moving. And if you're just because you had a no today, doesn't mean you won't have a yes next year. And I think that as, you know, as cliche as it can sound sometimes, but like just bet on yourself because that's the best thing you could possibly do. Definitely. That's great advice. Um, definitely collaboration and connecting is definitely a way to do it yeah and um thank you so much for coming on the podcast um I really appreciate you taking the time and telling your story and you know how you've been able to de develop projects and as an Iowa student um or as a former Iowa student I know this is going to really connect with a lot of current students and um 
Yeah. So Jack, do you want to close this thing out? Of course. And if anybody wants to watch the documentary, I highly recommend it. It was very, very entertaining and very insightful. It is called The Connected Cup on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, As always, not the same time, same place. We will see you guys later.